Sunday, the day of rest, and after the Innovators Ball rest was definitely needed, I thought I would be a zombie, but thanks to years of early mornings, I woke up at 7 a.m. on the dot. I dressed in gym clothing and took the elevator down to the mezzanine and met up with yogis Justin Timothy and Randy Woods. Justin led a small class in an hour of calm yet invigorating yoga. Poses designed to stretch the body and open up the chakras gave me energy for the day. Inhale, look in between the hands, walk the feet forward in between the hands, drawing the belly flat back on the spine. Big exhale, forward, forward. Inhale, return to standing, reach your arms. After yoga, there was another shower, dressing, and back to the loft on F Street for another workshop. It was raining when I got outside and caught a split to the loft. The driver didn't want to be interviewed. Interview? Yeah, why can't I just ask you questions? No, no, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you were recording yourself or something. Oh, no, okay, that's fine. Like yesterday, I climbed the stairs to the second floor. Like yesterday, people were already chowing down for breakfast. After several minutes of conversation, Cole came in. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Amazing. Good. And we started with reflections on yesterday, specifically the medicine wheel. Daniel Alejandro Leon Davis, pronouns include he, him, and daddy, gave his input on how important the medicine wheel exercise was for him. Uh, very simple. And so it actually completely like transformed my relationship with my boss and my relationship with my husband. And I guess for me, what was so amazing about yesterday was seeing, so we have like our entire Sons and Brothers team here, and seeing everyone on the team get mind-blown. And I've like been waiting for a year for them to be able to see this. Get mind-blown and be like, oh, damn. Like, for the last year, I basically said, I'm the asshole of the group. But now that they know the medicine wheel, it equates to I'm the buffalo of the group. <laughs> so, Others gave their reflections as well. We gotta push the envelope. We gotta have um, friendly confrontations with each other. Uh, in a positive manner. We also got to recognize that there has never, ever been a movement without music. So I'm really appreciative for that. However, not everyone was on the same wavelength when it came to Black Girl Magic. One summit attendee, Yolitsma Aguirre, took umbrage with a comment during the previous workshop. So, um, I was really upset at the end. There was this, uh, I can't remember who exactly it was, but they had said something about, like, um, all women of color should be thankful to the black woman. And I found that highly offensive to my women of color because in our story in Texas, we had lynchings in El Paso, but they were lynching Mexicans. So my history comes from mob lynchings and now I know my inner bear. I was like pulling up the history of El Paso and I was about to tweet it and send it out because there is a whole different type of history that's not in American history, because it's in Spanish, we were Mexico, and after the War of 1848, they just said, oh, okay, well, y'all that are here, you're now United States citizens, and if you don't speak English, sucks for you. That's how it went down in A Texas. sobering but valid criticism of the social construct we call race and race relations in the United States. A sobering but valid criticism of the social construct we call race and race relations in the United States. We frequently think of it as a black-white thing, but non-black people of color, specifically Latinx, have their own history with the pale oppressor, one that is similar to the black experience, but at times completely different. In the spirit of Brioxi, the reflectee had a moment of clarity when discussing her feelings with a friend. I don't know, I spoke to my gifted dear friend, 
and she's she's a, a, a beautiful deer. And and after that, um, she, she broke it down, and then I had like a whole revelation. Okay, I'm upset because I'm standing in the in the now Latina Texas. What is up? But if you step aside from that, she said, but how do we then grow and make a collective? And I thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't think about that. I didn't even think about how we change this and um, make a unified space. And then all of a sudden we had a whole different conversation and it was, it was wonderful and I wasn't mad anymore. And I was like, oh, I like that. And, and like Dina taught me, try it on. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I like that. You don't have to be like angry and no, rectify because you know, that's how we do. Like, I'm upset and it's gonna be handled, we're gonna take care of it, let you know. But no, it, it doesn't have to be that way. So the medicine wheel totally changed everything. Like, you can let it go, you can try it on, and like, what are we gonna do to build the space together? In a display of what can only be described as equal parts humility and fearlessness, Cole confessed it was she who uttered the offending comment, but she stood by it. I was actually the one who said that we all owe a debt to black women. Um, and I really appreciate you sharing like how you heard that and how you experienced it. And then for you, it was not only, I think what I heard was disrespectful, but I also heard it, it was hurtful um, in terms of the invisibilizing that you felt in that moment. And so one, I wanna um, honor that because it's hard in a circle of people where you feeling all the love and you done just dance last night and you like, I'm about to get up here and shut this shit down. <laughs> say what's on my heart and so I'm just honoring that in those moments we often tend to silence ourselves because we are again putting the good of the group in front of what our heart needs. Talking about race is tough. Minorities are accused of thinking and talking about race constantly but as minorities we always say well what else is there to talk about? When so much of life's successes and failures are centered on your skin tone, it's oftentimes difficult to not view life through the increasingly kaleidoscopic range of conversations that is race in the United States of America. Once reflections were finished, another Native American ceremony, we burned sage to cleanse ourselves and cleanse the space we were in. The burning of tobacco was a bit more spiritual. A sacred medicine, when burned, tobacco allows prayers to travel through the smoke so they may be answered. The ashes must be buried so that Mother Earth may consume the negativity you carry. The ceremony represents those before us whose memories and experiences live on. Cole then asked the audience to find someone they don't know and talk to them about how someone they know allowed them to succeed. After all, it's all about collaboration. After a conversation about getting people of color involved in the innovation economy, we broke for lunch. I scarfed down some food, and afterwards I interviewed Alexandria Lee, founder of the A New School. I kept on calling it The New School without the A, so if you ever listen to this, Alex, sorry. The word school is self-explanatory, but Alex took a different approach when founding her learning institution. The New School is... Um an international boarding school with three campuses, one in Brooklyn, one in Accra, Ghana, um, and another one that will potentially build back in bed for um, high school. And it is the first K-12 university of its kind, kindergarten through 12th grade, um, which gives university quality education to kids of color in our communities here and abroad. 
Growing up in Storrs, Connecticut, Alex was often the only black kid. She was treated unfairly by the administration, but a pivotal encounter with an instructor changed her life. And they didn't know what to do with me, so they put me in special ed. And they were like, you'll probably never graduate from high school. So I basically started believing what they were saying, and they would do all types of things. They'd give me in-school suspensions for having dirty locker, they put me in all these remedial classes, and then eventually special ed. And so um, I just pretty much gave up on school. And then my first year of high school, I had my first black teacher who was from Senegal. And he took a real special interest in me, and he said, you know, you're really smart. He started giving me really challenging writing assignments and uh, reading assignments. And I started to flourish. And so he said, take yourself out of these classes and put yourself in honors classes. And I thought, all right, sure. Um, so I went to the administration and I said, I'd like to be in AP and honors classes. And they said, there's no way. You'll definitely fail and you'll be embarrassed. And I said, well, let's just do a probationary and let's see what happens. And so they did. And then the rest was history. I went on to kick butt and I was uh, admitted to a lot of colleges decided to go to Spelman and when I I'm sorry hold on a second do you know Sasha is it Jones Johnson when did you graduate from Spelman 2004 I don't know when she graduated so never mind I'm sorry continue I'm far older than I appear <laughs> I probably don't know anybody that you know in school um, so uh, yeah upon graduation I had to do a senior project for a high school and my senior project was called What About My Curriculum, an in-depth look, or What About My History, an in-depth look at the American curriculum. And so I created um, classes for high school, middle school, and elementary school teaching black history to kids in my community. And so I went back to my middle school and I taught this class. And when I was leaving, I saw the gifted and talented director and she said, um, hey, are you Alex? I said, yeah. And she said, okay, well, what are you going to do in the fall? And I said, I'm going to college. And she went, you're going to college? I thought for sure by now you'd have gotten pregnant and dropped out. And I was like, why would you think that? It was, it was so crazy to me. And I realized at that moment when I was headed to college that if I had let the prejudice of my teachers control my history and, and my story, then I would be, you know, in the gutters. And I realized that there are kids like me, far more talented, who have been tracked for failure. Um, and that was my duty to help them and to transform their lives. With her personal legend clearly stated, Alex graduated from Spelman College and went to Harvard Law School thinking the best hope for black youth was through the legal system. But when I was actually a lawyer, I realized that that was not the way to help kids, that I was coming in a day, a day late and a dollar short. And so I realized education was really the key and, and slowly the bits and pieces came together. Actually... Those bits and pieces include Alex becoming an echoing Green Fellow and being inspired by the documentary The Boys of Baraka. The film explores the lives of four Baltimore boys who went to the Baraka School, a boarding school in East Kenya. Far and away from the harsh streets of Charm City, the film proved that the right learning environment can allow anyone from any background to flourish. One of the boys of Baraka, Devin Brown, went on to start his own business. If you're from Baltimore, you may be familiar with it, the Harker Brothers ice cream. 
Alex also traveled to Baltimore to talk with the families associated with the movie, as well as other families whose children attended boarding schools. After all the research, case studies, and partnerships with other Echoing Green fellows, Alex pivoted on her original idea for the Anu School and landed on something much more benevolent, not to say her early endeavors were anything short of amazing. And so now I have three other partners, and with them, you know, we have a staff of 70, we have 400 students in Bed-Stuy, we're building, you know, all these campuses in Ghana and then a boarding school back in Bed-Stuy, which will have affordable housing and public space, retail space, um, co-working space for other entrepreneurs. So we've created this whole community in this, like, you know, unbelievable space of education, and we're trying to, like, basically blow up the education system and flip it on its head. When I asked Alex how she learned about Brioxi, she mentioned that Cole was echoing green herself. And so she's, you know, like, godmother of echoing green. For us, we really look up to her, and she's been an amazing mentor um, and has really paved the way for us as social entrepreneurs of color. And so I first met Alex her. learned much from Cole and felt it was her duty to support Brioxi. We talked more about her experiences living in Africa and how across thousands of miles of water, Ghana and other African countries have their own ready generation. Everything that we're experiencing here in terms of movement, next gen, you see there. There's so many entrepreneurs. It's insanity. So you have... Um, With you have that, I made a comment about the differences in black American and African culture. However, in her experience, Alex fully believes these differences are intentional and we shouldn't pay attention to them. If we unite, the power that we'll have would be unstoppable, which is why people don't want us to unite. Um, and so, My last question for Alex was about other differences educational differences and how they can affect interactions with other people. As a graduate of Spelman and Harvard Law School graduate, seasoned corporate lawyer and Echoing Green fellow, it's safe to say that in many instances, Alex is probably the smartest person in the room. But that can intimidate less educated people, especially children who have been told time and time again by authority figures that they're no good. The last thing they want is someone telling them what to do and when to do it. When I asked Alex how she communicates with her kids, she had this to say. And so when my kids hear my story, I, you know, I, I didn't come from an ivory, to ivory tower. I, my parents were unmarried. My dad was drug addicted. I was in, you know, special ed. So they can really relate to me and they can see, okay, if she can do all this stuff, if she can be at the White House on Monday and go to Harvard and go to Spelman, then I can too. And I really keep them close to me. Um, so, I mean, we have a lot of programming that kind of teaches them how to be critical thinkers, teaches them how they can accomplish their dreams. But there's nothing more instructive than just seeing a black girl like me at the front of their class who's done all these things and really is investing in the community that she believes in. Um, and so I take them to my house and they're like, oh, well, dang, you know, she owns a house. She owns a car. She's, uh, you know, a bad chick. And that, I think, is really something that really inspires them is just seeing. Um, you can tell them all day. You can say, go to college. But if you don't actually close that gap and show them and wear your Spelman sweatshirt and, you know, take them on college visits and show them how to get financial aid and, really incorporate their parents into the, the discussion and their grandparents and their aunties, um, you have to make it real. Um, and that, to me, has been, I think, the greatest connector. Because I say, so they call me Sister Alex. 
I said, do you want to be like Sister Alex? Yes, yes I do. And so then I said, well, what do you think it took? I mean, real conversations. Like, do you think I just sit in my butt and, and complain when they complain about quizzes? You think that's how I got here? No. Well, what does it take? Bravery. Okay, well, what's bravery? You know, we break down these ideas and make it really, really real. It's not just about... Um, you know, speaking it, we have to really help them conceptualize. They see lots of examples of, you know, difficulty and struggle. They need to see more examples of success. And I know that, you know, I've lived in bedside for seven years. And one thing that people would always say to me is when I would go to work, when I was a corporate lawyer, um, where do you go every day from nine to five? And I'm like, wait, what? Well, every morning I see you in the morning, you get out of your house, you have your briefcase, and you get on the, the train, and then you come home at night. Where do you go all day? And I'm like, I go to work. They're like, oh. And that was a real, real, it was like a real, um, real moment for me. I was like, wow, they really need to see me. Um, you know, I could be in corporate law making ugads of money and just be in that ivory tower, or I could be doing what I've always wanted to do, which was help children. Um, and that is the connector that really motivates them. And I know, like, when stuff happens with my kids, I say, you're never going to forget this. <laughs> you're never going to forget me, and, and don't forget me when you're wealthy and you get those millions. You know, Sister Alex needs a mansion. Don't forget me, because I'm the one who's lit this spark. And they're like, I know, I know. <laughs> A quote that long may not fly on the radio, but it was too good to chop up into bits and pieces. After lunch, conversations resumed, but not without another breathing session first. Everybody ready? Inhale. Migration and Pattern was a four-person panel that discussed the U.S.'s abysmal immigration policies. Each panelist had their own experiences with La Migra, a slang term for immigration and customs enforcement. The panel started with a short video produced by Forward.us, a nonpartisan organization that supports immigration reform. Its founders include Mark Zuckerberg, and you all know who that is. The film, Free Like the Birds, told the story of Sophie, the little girl who took the world by storm when she got past a police barricade protecting the Pope as his motorcade drove through the nation's capital. Police went to grab her, but Pope Francis invited the girl onto his motorcade. She wanted to hand him a letter. It was about her parents who were undocumented migrants and their struggles. Because she was born in the U.S., Sophie was a citizen, a dreamer. In the film, her father held back tears as he explained how devastating it would be to be separated from his daughters due to immigration policy. When the film ended, many people needed tissues themselves. Growing up, panelist Daniel Davis was undocumented but didn't know it until he was 18. His mother kept the secret from him to protect him. She wanted him to live a life unburdened by the fear of deportation. Another panelist, Wendy Carrillo, showed pictures of how tough life is for migrants and refugees just looking for something better. Ships overfilled with migrants traversed the Mediterranean, the imagery not unlike slave ships from our country's shameful history. A father reached through barbed wire to receive his infant son in hopes that his son will live long enough to have a family of his own. Wendy also discussed how many migrant policies such as wet foot, dry foot just aren't working for everyone and leaving many hardworking and honest people in limbo. It was a hard topic for panelist and art activist Lily Floor to discuss. Her mother was a migrant to the U.S. and though Lily Floor was a citizen, her mother was only a resident. 
The looming threat of La Migra was ubiquitous in Lily's childhood. But growing up, uh, you know, always afraid of uh, Migra coming to get my mom. And, and I think that that's what really fueled me in the work that I do today, um, just like her. That's what I do, what I do, and why I do it. Lily went on to explain that her mother's sacrifice and struggle is what fuels her art and activism today. She works tirelessly to raise awareness and sometimes directly intervene in the gentrification of Boyle Heights, a predominantly Mexican-American neighborhood in Los Angeles, California. Gentrification, simply put, is when businesses buy property in urban neighborhoods, in many cases urban just means colored, and price longtime residents out of their homes once these businesses develop the property, adding storefronts and artisanal toast shops. These practices wouldn't necessarily be a problem if businesses actually consulted with the residents of the neighborhoods before bulldozing them. While many older residents of gentrified neighborhoods just move out, younger residents fight back with protests and organizing to prevent the eradication of their heritage and culture. One collective, the Ovarian Psychos, described their, quote, political views as feminist ideals with indigena understanding and an urban-slash-hood mentality. The name is a clear double entendre. They're an all-female bicycle brigade, and at the time of the summit, the Psychos were being displaced from their building in East L.A. The Guardian wrote a story about the Ovos and cycling culture in L.A., but Joshi Palomera of Corazón del Pueblo had problems with other outlets writing about the Guardian piece and even fired back. Now, one thing about that is that other media outlets wrote about that article, which is positive and negative because it's like, okay, cool, it's going viral. They're writing about the article, but why didn't you come and talk to more people? Why didn't you get... The rest of the story. Some articles about the ovarian psychos labeled them as an intimidating and aggressive bicycle gang. Joshi gave her opinions on the hypocrisy of gentrification and how groups bent on revitalizing certain neighborhoods are faking the funk. You know nothing about all of the work that is being done and you know nothing about the people that live here and this historically migrant community. So don't come in here trying to serve up your artisanal treats or whatever you try to do. If anything, go buy some tacos from the lady on the corner, you know? Like, so serve the people are literally saying we're tired of these gentrification meetings with all preaching to the choir folks and let's, we're just going to move. When certain political empowerment organizations resort to extreme methods to protect their homes and culture, the media will sensationalize it to justify gentrification. As the panel wrapped up, Joshi explained these methods aren't rash decisions by a band of vagrants. They are reacting to a threat. Gentrification is violence. We are not violent through our reaction. We are actually defending. What would you do if somebody came and threatened your family? How would you react? You know? Would you get violent? There's a difference between violence and defending. By any means necessary. There was an interactive element to the final part of Day 3's workshop. We all stood in a circle and at the same time said the names of those whose shoulders we stand upon. Those names were the people who sacrificed and worked hard so we could get to where we are today. 
families, friends, even teachers and other mentors. After that, more innovation sessions. Cole used the term theft of brilliance to describe the first session. Four people from four different companies were the subject of the sessions and described a problem or plateau they were having with scaling and their company. The theft part of these sessions comes from other members in the group offering advice and ideas to the subjects from a fresh and objective angle. The beauty of these sessions is like a fresh pair of eyes on a term paper. Sometimes you're too close to something to see what you're missing. The second session was about the untold story of storytellers. Storytelling is as old as sand and for many of us a connection to our roots. Many storytellers from around the nation came to the Briaxi Innovation Summit. In this session, three storytellers told their own personal stories along with showcasing some of their work. They would show more of their work later on. When the final workshop of the day was finished, everyone left the loft and relaxed back at the hotel. A few hours later, we all returned to the loft for dinner. There was a sumptuous buffet of fish, chicken, veggies, and meatless options for those who lived that life. As everyone got seated, we all tucked into our plates and enjoyed conversation about our experiences at the summit. A special guest came in for dinner as well, vegan chef, author, and food and society policy fellow Bryant Terry. Terry's credentials are extensive, and all of them deal with food justice and activism. As a young man, Terry knew there had to be a better way to educate the youth on healthy eating. In the beginning of his talk, he recounted a story that contributed to his journey of healthy eating and education. So I had seen this before, but this was the first time that I really saw something that was deeply disturbing. 7 o'clock in the morning, I'm reviewing my notes, my lesson plan for the class I was TAing, and I look over... And I see these young people, children, 7 o'clock in the morning, drinking sodas, sugary juices, energy drinks, eating salty chips. Let me be, let me be specific. Red Hot Cheetos. <laughs> candy bars. And the items from the dollar menu of fast food restaurants. This was their breakfast. It disturbed Bryant to see people eating so poorly so early, early in the day and in their lives. In his journey, Terry did some research and learned that the Black Panthers had a food program that gave hot, nourishing breakfasts to children, feeding over 10,000 children in several cities across the nation daily. Of course, the Panthers' food program was met with opposition from the powers that were, and as far as blackness goes, continue to be. J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI at the time, and you can look this up, because when they declassify files, about the COINTELPRO's effort to undermine radical movements. J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI at the time, stated that the most dangerous threat to the internal security of the United States is the free breakfast for children program. Wow. Not the guns, mind you, that the Panthers were carrying around to protect our community from police brutality. Sausage and grits was the most dangerous threat to the internal security of the United States. Another experience transformed Brian into the acclaimed chef and activist we know today. It was at a national conference about food justice and ways to combat the prevalence of food deserts in urban and rural areas. So I go on these conferences and I look around the room and I notice that 
the people being most impacted by the issues being discussed, whether we're talking about Latino migrant farm laborers, whether we're talking about African-American farmers who are land, losing their land at unprecedented rates, whether we're talking about poor white people living in Appalachia and other rural areas, whether we're talking about low-income folks of color living in urban centers and neighborhoods that are described as food deserts. These folks weren't in the room, and they certainly weren't at the table to where a lot of the strategies and the decisions about how the food movement will move forward would be. And so I argue that we need to widen the net. We need to bring more people into the conversation. And what better way to do that than by using food? A solution so simple, yet somehow no one had thought of it. As Terry continued his talk, he mentioned the importance of what he called the three C's of change. So that first C, that, that consumer change is important, right? Basically, stop shopping at big box stores and support your local businesses. To underline this fact, Terry mentioned that earlier this year, Walmart closed down hundreds of stores due to communities practicing consumer change. A lot of publications say Walmart closed them down to focus more on building up their super centers, but you be the judge. The second C, community-wide action. The second C goes hand-in-hand hand with the first C, and we're starting to see more community-focused initiatives. Events like First Fridays and Small Business Saturday are putting the spotlight on local businesses. Let's just talk about churches. Terry also took aim at churches, saying they could promote community by using their generous coffers and swaths of land to develop community gardens. On a positive note, Terry talked about a school in Texas with a languishing football program. The president canceled the program, turned the football field into a farm, and developed an agricultural program to provide sustainable produce for their community and for the school. The agricultural program now turns a profit for the school, unlike the failing football program. Brian Terry didn't really get to the last C, but went on to talk about the strides he's made as a food justice activist. Be Healthy is a not-for-profit organization that encourages more youth to take an active role in changing the current state of food into something more sustainable. Like most educational endeavors, it starts with education. Terry then told us about a success story from Be Healthy that he holds close to his heart. This young woman in our program, Theodora, 16 years old, came into our program. She wasn't, she hadn't thought about eating healthily, but she had a son, two-year-old son. And so all of a sudden, it became real for her. We started this organization, and Theodora quickly catapulted from student to teacher. And so she started doing programs for young people, young mothers, in the door where we were based, this multi-service agency in Manhattan, and other organizations throughout New York City. And I was able to raise enough money, I got a half million dollar grant from the, the New York Foundation to pilot this program, the Healthy Moms, Healthy Babies program, and Theodore helped to run it. I reconnected with her late, um, maybe like three months ago. She's now continuing to do this work around food as an educator and a food entrepreneur. In addition to the success of Be Healthy, Terry was approached by the Museum of the African Diaspora and... Back in the fall of 2014, Linda Harrison, the executive director of the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, approached me about being the chef in residence at the museum. And they don't even have a kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> but what they do have is a grand vision. And that vision, as Terry puts it, is programming for the public based around food, health, farming, art, activism, and of course, the African diaspora.
Brian Terry ended his piece with two videos underlining some of the programs he's developed. The first was Black Women, Food, and Power, a panel discussion that was to, quote, discuss the role that black women have played historically and contemporarily in the production, distribution, and consumption of food. The second event was a diaspora dinner, a nine-course meal that drew from culinary inspirations from East Africa to the American South to Oakland, California. Food is an integral part of the human experience. It's a connection to and preservation of culture and history. After Terry finished his presentation, more reflections. Throughout this entire weekend, many reflections from Summit attendees had them saying how grateful they were for a space to talk and learn about the pressing issues that permeate through all cultures of color in the United States. Closing out the third day of the Brioxi Summit were three spoken word performances by the storytellers from the earlier workshop. Sarai from Long Beach, California, and from Richmond, California, Queen Nyabinga McDowell. and Dante Chocolate Carp performed their pieces, pouring their hearts out to the crowd, telling stories of their struggles. Race, colorism, prison, abuse, and drugs were common themes in each piece, themes that everyone everywhere, unfortunately, can relate to on a certain level. Tomorrow, the last day of the summit, Destination, the White House. On special assignment for Brioxi, I'm Jason V. with Local Color.